Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hello, everybody. Uh, now, we're recording this on the Monday morning after Le Mans. Um, and so, I mean, we have to just spend a little bit of time chatting about that, don't we? Uh, we're also going to put Andrew's Le Mans knowledge to the test. Uh, we'll come back to that uh, momentarily. But later on as well, we're also going to be talking about car interiors, not something we really discuss very much on this podcast. But it's, I don't know, an interesting and important topic when you're assessing a car. Um, so, Andrew, Le Mans, we both watched reasonable amounts of it this year uh probably won't remember a great deal of it what do you reckon uh, i mean okay so so what was good about it it was great it was fantastic um that uh Kamu Kobayashi and obviously mike conway and uh, lopez won because they've tried so hard for so long um and they've in my opinion they've usually been the better car they've usually been the better car than the one on the other side of the garage and they've just been undone by bad luck i think particularly conway and kobayashi are the class acts of the lamore field and it's and it was just really great that this time they just had a trouble-free run um you know neither none of them even looked like making a mistake um and you know kobayashi just remember he's got pole at lamore four times in the last five races um, you know, Conway is the fastest, most consistent guy out there. Um, they absolutely deserve to win the race. So I was, I, you know, I was terribly pleased that that finally happened. Um, LMP2, um, you know, because it's a one-mate race series, um, always um, has some excitement. And this year was no exception. And I felt very sorry for Louis Delatraz and Robert Kubica and whoever else was in the car um, when it died. With I think, I think it died with like two minutes to go. From a really comfortable lead in P2, but that did mean it, it had just come ridiculous... through. It had just come through the Dunlop Bridge, hadn't it, on the last lap? Yeah, and ground yeah. So it had, it had less than a lap to go. Um, but then there was this sort of like mad dash for the line, um, and yeah, the, it was won with by three quarters of a second. Uh, I don't know if you saw the flag marshal very nearly getting taken out, but 
Um, yeah, I suspect that's the last time. <laughs> pretty much what is the last bit of tradition at Lemoore goes out the window because I can't see him standing there next year. No, um, not when there's still a race to be won or lost. No. It's no. madness. Uh, it is madness, but it's also, you know, it is just part of the charm um, of that race. And, you know, you know, we, we say it's madness now from our 2021 perspective, but, you know, throughout the vast history of motor racing, you know, major motor races have been won... Have, the victory has been signalled by a man with a checkered flag waving it, and it's you know I I, I like the sort of charm, and I I know that he probably shouldn't be standing quite in the middle of the track. Um, I suspect the problem was more not with the fact that he was waving a flag, but where he was waving it from, which probably wasn't great. But um, yeah, the anyway, issue for me um, was that there was still there was still a, a tight battle in the P two yes, field. There was. And the the leaders, as they always do, just cruise over the line, don't they, to get that photo finish? Yeah, but behind there's absolute, mm. you know, there's a race going on. Yeah. Um, but other than that, um, you know, GT categories A, of course, I had both of those, um, you know, pretty much under control for the duration of the race. Um, and up the front, you know, I said in the uh, Instagram post today, you know five cars started in the new hypercar category and usually if you get a new category in motor racing there's all sorts of you know mechanical mayhem and carnage because people haven't optimized their cars and done their durability and at this time you know five cars started p1 2 3 4 and 5 and they ended p1 2 3 4 and 5 in exactly the same order they started and i just think oh you know what's exciting about that you know um, you know, the two Toyotas were always going to run and hide. Um, whatever anybody else said about, oh, you know, the Alpines have got a real chart. I mean, you know, I, can, I understand that people wishing to big up the race and making it appear that there is some kind of competition um, saying that. But the, frankly, there never was, um, particularly because of, you know, um, the advantage, not necessarily the pace advantage, but the advantage that Toyota is able to eke out over um, the course of a race. Um, and so I think, you know, the Toyotas were probably cruising. Um, Alpine knew perfectly well they couldn't catch the Toyotas and they probably realised they had the legs on the Glickenhauses. So they were probably thinking, well, we're going to get on the podium, which is a fantastic result for them. Um, and they were very pleased with that. And the two Glickenhauses were obviously going, God, you know, if we can get these things to the end, that would be a fantastic result for us, which it was. So in many ways, it was for, you know, for the top five teams. So for both Toyotas, the Alpine and for the Glickenhauses, they have all reason to be, you know, individually very pleased with what they did. It just wasn't a spectacle. It just didn't. It just wasn't an exciting motor race, um, which is a shame. Um, there's just not enough sufficiently hot competition out the front. You know, obviously when you know Audi and Porsche and Ferrari and all that mob are, you know, in there too. Toyota's going to have to, you know, put its finger out and you know, and, and, and God, I mix my metaphors terribly now, but you know, <laughs> put the pedal to the metal and and, and, and all that. But um, you know, and this is what happens when you get a period of just total domination. Um, you know, the people at the front, they may not appear to be winning the race by huge margins, but that's because they choose not to. Because why would you push your cars harder than um, you need to? So you establish a comfortable gap and then you um, and then you just kind of wander around, which is what happened. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's an awful thing. I wasn't sad. I wasn't there. Mm. Can I, also, can, I, can I do a big shout out one thing I really did enjoy our mate Jethro doing the yeah um, in the pits asking racing drivers proper questions rather than the usual sort of dumbed down um, I thought he did you know I know he was a bit nervous about going down there um, but Jethro Bovington this is who I'm sure will be known to everybody listening to this um, he was uh, a Eurosport pit lane reporter first time he ever done anything like that um, I thought he was really good 
Yeah, he was he, because he because he understands what it what it's like to actually compete in a twenty four hour race. He's done the Nurburgring Absolutely. twenty four several times. He's raced a lot. He can talk to drivers, um, but he's also a journalist, so he understands what's interesting to an audience. So yes, he knows I, what I a question him, is. Yeah, I heard him asking some good questions to particularly Anthony Davidson. He just said, "So what is a green track?" And he got yeah. Anthony Davidson to give a really good detailed explanation of actually what a green track is um, and what it feels like and how you drive on a green track. And yeah, yeah, and it was, it, it was interesting that I just hadn't heard those uh, those apparently quite basic questions that give that extract insightful answers from the drivers. Yeah. Um, and that's what he did well. Begging, begging him to go back next year, or they bloody well ought to. Um, because yeah, you know he was just he was really really good um so yeah other than that yeah you know. it wasn't it wasn't a classic um but that happens with all sport i mean how many cricket matches how many football matches how many grand prix are pretty unforgettable that's right pretty you, forgettable. You, you, you are you, you are absolutely right and we it just happens too, yeah it, you do just get dull ones occasionally don't you yeah and i think if every Le Mans was like that, it would be nothing like the global motorsport phenomenon that it is. But it, it's it's what it no. is because a lot but of I th- them I are really exciting. Can say, yeah, but I think what we can say is the exciting ones tend to be when the competition is red hot up the front. You know, when Audi were just winning everything, it, they you know the races were pretty dull. Um, but in those years when you know, you had you had Audi and you had Porsche and you had Nissan and Nissan and you had Mercedes and you had Pena and you had and you had an endless um, guys. Then you know that's when the good races come. And you know that is coming. It's a couple of years' time. We will not be having this conversation after the more twenty twenty three. I'm fairly confident. But you know, for now, we have to report as we find. Um, by the way, I just want to mention Jose Maria Lopez, one of the Toyota drivers yes. who won. Um, Actually, I don't think he gets the recognition he deserves because I remember a few years ago when he was unbeatable in the World Touring Car Championship. Unbeatable. Triple, triple, triple world champion, wasn't it? No one could get near him. Um, and he was one of the Citroen drivers along with, was it Ivan Muller and certainly Sebastian Loeb? I think it was Muller. Maybe, maybe I've got that wrong, but, you know, good competition. And he just destroyed everyone. Now he's a, he's a, he's a WEC champion, isn't he? And he's a Le Mans winner. Um, so... Oh, I mean, that is a. We we had our conversation recently, didn't we, about um, uh, sort of multifaceted drivers, drivers competing across disciplines. Um, neither of us remembered to mention him, but he certainly stands up there uh, with the best of recent times, I'd say. And only the second Argentine driver to win Le Mans. The first mm. being. Gonzalez? Very good. Yeah, because Fangio never won it, did he? No. no. Everybody thinks he did, but he doesn't. No, he would have won it in 55, without any question, uh, but he did Of course. Yeah, okay. Um, right, do we need to take off? Uh, let's just talk about the, the GTE competition. Um, so Ferrari won both classes. And as ever, I just don't, I still don't really know what that means. Okay, Aston Martin won both classes last year. Ferrari came back and won both classes this year. Is it because their engineers have done the best <laughs> I, 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 development I, I, work? <laughs> Is it because is the they're drivers? Bop. Is it, or does it have something to do with the word bop? You know, I, I don't know. I just, I don't particularly know what what size of achievement that is. Maybe it's enormous. Maybe it's not. I, Fer- I really Ferrari were quite unhappy with the way they got bop this year because really? they lost. Yeah, well, after I think after quali, oh no, it was actually it was in the middle of quali. It was like two minutes before a session. That's right. Uh, it was one of the practice sessions, and they lost half the session because they had to adapt the cars. Um, 
what did they say? I think they had to reduce the size of the fuel tank and they lost some horsepower or whatever. Um, but maybe the ACA realised they had a massive advantage and just wanted to peg them back and didn't do it quite enough. Um, I mean, I think those. I mean, I, I think there is a real danger that in those categories, because if you look at the way that they play out, it does seem to be. No, I'm not saying it seems to be. I think the impression can sometimes be given that it's the ACO going, well, it's yeah. your turn now, and it's your turn now, and it's your turn now. I'm not yeah. saying for a second that is the case. I'm saying that is the impression you would That's be forgiven for, for receiving, um, which makes you wonder, you know, is this, you know, therefore just a marketing exercise, or are we actually watching a, a proper motor race? Um, and I think, actually, and this is something that, I mean, I could talk about at length, I just think that entire race is over-regulated. I think the regulations themselves make it too easy for cars to get around for 24 hours. But I also think the way the ACO polices the race is just much too heavy-handed. There are so many, um, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, you anyway, obviously, you know, compromise the safety, particularly of track marshals and people rebuilding tyre barriers and that sort of thing. But there are so many slow loans and there's so many yellow flags and there's so many, you know, Eduardo de Freitas, you know, just always on the telephone like Big Brother say, you must do this, you must do that. And, you know, I just think, just let them race. Let them get on with it. Um, and, you know, I just think it's over-regulated and I think that in their understandable and at many times, you know, commendable efforts to make sure that this is a race with as little risk as possible, um, they're compromising the very thing that it's there for, which is to be the world's greatest motor race. Um, and, and I think they need to be careful about that. Um, it's just, it just seems overmanaged, overregulated to the, to the extent that sometimes, you know, you think it's, it's almost like you're watching a puppet show, but particularly with all the bop and, and everything else. So, um, yeah, let them race. Mm. Good. Okay. Um, all right. Well, let's leave Le Mans 2021 there. Uh, and move on to this Le Mans challenge that we sort of teased at the beginning. Now, last why week, wasn't I, why, it? why do I say that? <laughs> uh, uh, it always because, seems like a good idea at the time. Because It's because you know you can do it. Um, anyway, so last week... Well, we'll see. We'll, we'll see about that, won't we? I, I, I'm more confident about this one than the Formula One one, which I did by the skin of my teeth and i think with quite a bit of help from you um, it was it well not, no, yeah. not, not so much help from me but you i mean yeah you were scratching around a little bit but okay so a week and a bit ago um you were able to name every formula one world champion from 1950 to 2020 in order um and lots of the cars as well uh it was it was an impressive feat um this time you're going to try and name every le mans winning team uh, from the very beginning, 1923, to yesterday. Uh, well, car, more car than team, because sometimes okay. there have been... Yeah, it's going to be car. It's definitely going to be car. Um, because sometimes there have been privateers who won it and privateer Porsches, and, you know, the Yost have won it and Brum have won it, and, and yeah, I'm, 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 not gonna, I'm not that good. But I, th- <laughs> I, I hope I can do every car, and I'll try, I'll try and give a bit of details on some of the more interesting ones if I can. Okay, now this is probably a, a trickier thing to do. Well, you know, for most people, this would be a trickier thing to do than Formula One champions because there's a longer history of Le Mans than there is Formula One. And it's just a bit more obscure, I think, isn't it? But I have every faith in your ability. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> so uh, I will jump in if you get one wrong, just so that you can correct yourself if necessary and we can continue through. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. I'm using the, the Wikipedia entry, which is reliable. Um, 
1925 you'll have to explain to me why I've got a car listed, but not a team name. But that's for when we get there. Um, so in your own time. Well, no, actually, actually, no. Do you know what? Because it's such a red herring. It's such a diversion. I'm just going to deal with it now. Okay. Okay. Fine. There were officially no winners of Le Mans in the first few years. Okay. Because they commit. They, actually, what they were competing with competing for was a thing called the Rudge Whitworth Triennial Trophy okay and so you didn't win if you won the more in 1924 1925 you didn't win the more you won a, you won a round of the Rudge Whitworth Triennial Trophy but it's so geeky it's so sort of I don't know specialist knowledge that you know frankly you still have a race where the car that drives the fastest and does the does the most laps wins the race so that's the basis i'm taking it on so i'm just going to tell you the 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 name of the car that drove over the finish line first after 24 hours and forget all this and they and they abandoned it in the in the 20s because they realized it was a completely ridiculous idea um, but that's why there are no official teams listed as individual winners of Le Mans in the early years, because technically speaking, there weren't. OK, fine. Well, that's that dealt with. Um, and just so that I can edit this together as a standalone video, Andrew Frankel is going to try and name every Le Mans winning car from 1923 right the way up until 2021. Um, Andrew, I will jump in if you get one wrong in your own time. Off you go. Okay, so we start in 1923, the first ever Le Mans, which was won by a Chenard et Walker. I don't know whether the pronunciation of that is right, but it's good enough for me. 1924, uh, first Bentley win. Wasn't a works team, but it was works prepared. John Duff, Frank Clement driving that car. 1925 and 1926 uh, were won by a French brand called Lorraine Dietrich. 1927, um, to this day, there has never been a greater winning margin than the margin won by Bentley over Ross Salmson in 1927. Uh, 1928, Bentley again. Uh, Wolf Bernardo Bernard Rubin won the race um, with a cracked chassis that had pulled all the water out. So they basically had an air-cooled Bentley when they came over the line. No water in the radiator at all, but they, and, and it expired almost immediately after, but they did that. 1929, total Bentley walkover. The cars were literally going so slowly that one of their drivers, a bloke called Jack Dunfrey, said to W.O. Bentley, what do you want me to do? Get out and push the bloody thing. Um, 1930, Bentley's last uh, great battle between the Bentley team and Rudolf Caracciolo's SSK Mercedes. 1931, Earl Howe and uh, Tim Birkin again in the first of a few Alfa Romeo victories. So it goes Alfa 31, 32, 33, 34. 35, Lagonda, M45R, Johnny and Louis Fontes. Uh, both of them tragically killed very soon after. Um, Johnny Hindmarsh, 1938, testing a hurricane. Louis Fontes in 1940, uh, delivering a Wellington to Landau. Um, Louis Fontes, although he didn't sound it, was, in, was British as well. Um, so where did that take us to? 1936. This is the great Le Mans trick question. Who won Le Mans in 1936? The answer is no one did because there wasn't one. Uh, there was a strike at the time, so forget that. 1937, Bugatti. 1938, Delahaye. 1939, Bugatti. Um, then uh, there was the, uh, the inconvenience of World War II, which stopped all play at Le Mans until 1949. Uh, 1949, Ferrari's first win, uh, but not uh, a works entry, but the entry of 
Luigi Canetti and Lord Selsden. Canetti drove 21 hour, hours after Selsden got sick. Uh, it was other than the Chenard Walk, which won the first ever Le Mans, so I guess that counts, but it was the first time a mark had won Le Mans at, its first, at the first time of asking, and I think it's only happened once since. Um, 1950, Largo, Talbot, 1951, first the Jaguar wins uh, in the C-Type, the, the original prototype C-Type, XKCW03, as you're asking, um, on drum brakes, 1952. Um, that's when um, Paul Pierre Levesque, um, also in a Largo, to so nearly won it. He did 22 and a half hours solo, and he would have won the race, but he missed a gear and blew it up. Um, he drove because he thought the car had a mechanical fault and that his teammate, whose name I do forget, uh, wouldn't have had the me- mechanical sympathy to drive around it. So he said, you're not driving, I'll do the whole thing myself. Um, won by a Mercedes 300 SL, Pierre Levesque sadly being much more famous for the bloke who uh, died in the 1955 Le Mans crash, which I'll get to in a minute. 1953, uh, the second of the C-Type wins, now using disc brakes. Um, Duncan Hamilton and Tony Rolt, no, they weren't drunk, despite all the stories to the contrary. 1954, Ferrari's second win. Very wet race, this one. Maurice Trintignant and the great Argentine, uh, Froland Gonzalez, um, beating Rolton Hamilton by that stage in a prototype D-type into second place. 1955, uh, the worst, most tragic accident in motor racing history. Over 80 people died um, when Levesque's car um, went into the crowd. Um, most people think that Mike Hawthorne slowing his Jaguar for the pits, which was actually literally part of the track at the time, just to the side, uh, was the primary cause of that. 1956, um, that was a private win. That was an Acuria Cos win, also a Jaguar D-type. Uh, Ron Flockhart and Ninian Sanderson. Uh, 1957, Flockhart again in another Acuria Cos D-type, but this time driving with either the driver, Bueb. 1958, Ferrari, Testarossa. 1959, uh, Carroll Shelby, Rolls Roy Salvadori, Aston Martin, DBR1. Aston Martin winning Le Mans for the first time in 10 attempts under John Wire. Um, won the World Sports Car Championship that year too, still to this day, easily Aston Martin's greatest era of competition success. Uh, then we go into the Ferrari era, uh, 1960, 61, 62, 63, 64, all um, works Ferrari wins. 1965 was a private Ferrari win, the North American racing team entry of Jochen Rint and Maston Gregory. Uh, that was the one which Ferrari didn't want them to win because they had the wrong tyres on it, and they wanted the, he wanted the Belgian car, which was on the right tyres, which was coming second. And he went to, funnily enough, Luigi Canetti and told him to slow his cars down to let the Belgian car through it. Um, and Canetti told him what to do with that idea. Um, obviously, 64, 65 should have been the years that the Ford GT40 um, swept all before them, um, but they. Um, how can I put this screwed up both times? Um, 64, understandable, because they knew 65, they should have won, but didn't. Uh, and then we do enter the Ford era, 66, 67, 68, 69, GT40, 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 GT40. Uh, the last one being X and Oliver in what is to date still the closest non-staged finish of the race. And if you remember, that was the year of the last... Um, running start across the track which Jackie X thought was such a stupid thing to do he walked and so he got away last and he only won the race by I think 150 yards so he must have been thinking about that in the in the last um few laps of that race beat Hans Herman in a Porsche 908 into second place 1970 obviously Richard Atwood and the aforementioned Hans Herman in the first of the Porsche victories um Porsche 917 Terribly wet rate again. Uh, totally unfancied car. It was the slowest 917 of the works teams. I think it qualified 14th. Four and a half litre engine, not five. Four speed box, not five. But um, 
they just they were just captain consistencies and they just drove through all that and they made no mistakes and they won the race. 1971, uh, I talked about this on the Instagram site last week, Helmut Marco and Geis von Lennep um, averaging over 138 in the Martini uh, 917 with its uh, magnesium frame, which they didn't know about. Um, and then they obviously outlawed the 917s because they're going to win everything. So um, the three, there was a three-litre formula. And then so the next three years, it was Matra, Matra, Matra. Um, the wonderful V12 three-litre matches. If you've never heard one, go onto YouTube and listen to one now. I still think it's the greatest sound any car has ever made. Which takes us to 1975. That was the first of the X-Bell victories, um, but in a John Wire run Mirage with a Cosworth DFV in the back. 1977, so we're back into Porsches now. Porsche 936, 77, and... No, it wasn't 78, was it? It's because the 78, well, no, 70, hang on, hang on, hang on. No, 76 was the Porsche, 77 was the Porsche, 78 was the Alpine. Um, the Alpine Renault, um, which we know about. 79, Porsche again. 80, Rondo. Jean Rondo. Um, still, I think, the only person to win Le Mans in a car of his own name and creation. 81, the Digger 936, literally out of the museum. And Ixon Bell go and win it again. Completely trouble-free race. Destroyed everyone. 1982, obviously, we have Group C. And now, actually, from 81 to 87, can I just say Porsche? Because it goes... It goes 936, 956, 956, and then 962, 96, 962, all the way to 1987. Um, and if I don't sort of sweep through these a bit quickly, people are going to get frightfully bored. 1988, Jaguar. Yay, I was there. First Le Mans um, I attended. Uh, last Le Mans of the old pits, um, XJR9, um, Jan Namas, Andy Wallace, Johnny Dumfries, the late Johnny Dumfries. Finally, because they'd won the championship the year before, but not Le Mans, um, delivering Jaguar the victory that... A lot of us have been waiting for. Uh, 89 Mercedes-Benz, Sauber Mercedes. Um, 90 Jaguar, again, with the XJR 12. 91 first Japanese victory, uh, Volker Wiedler, Birkentrol and Gasher, and our own Johnny Herbert. Um, fascinating race. Not nearly enough time to go into the, 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 what, what happened, which allowed them to win. But, um, yeah, really, really interesting race. 30 years ago now, blimey. Um, I do know what happened next, but I don't know the details because 92 and 93 were the Peugeots, the 905s. Um, wasn't particularly interested in those. Uh, 94 is an interesting one because it was the Dower, the 964, uh, the, the, the Dower Porsche 962, which was a real, I mean, that was, I mean, Porsche have always been world class at getting around the wheels before, but I mean, that was their ultimate rule dodge. Um, and again, not nearly enough time to explain what went on there, but that was quite a cool win. Uh, 95 McLarens in the wet, lots and lots of McLarens. Um, and it was going to be the Harrods car of Andy Wallace and, the, and Bell Senior and Junior. Um, but then there was the Not Works Honest uh, Ueno Clinic car, which came through JJ later in the wet. Who could ever forget that? Um, and they won that first time a Japanese, Masanuo Sakia won that first time a Japanese driver had won Le Mans. Uh, 96 uh, and 97, I've been writing about those two races quite a lot on the, on the app recently. That was the, <laughs> that was the not Jaguar TWR WSC 95 Porsche that won both those races, despite the fact that its life had started in 1991 as an XJR14. It had actually gone, that actual chassis, chassis 691, had gone to Le Mans and Andy Wallace had gone out in practice, gone three seconds faster than anybody else and they just stuck it back on the track just to go, ha ha, we can do that. And they didn't bother racing the car because they didn't think it would last. But it did, with a Porsche engine and open bodywork, that actual chassis did win Le Mans twice in 96 and 97. 98, uh, Porsche GT1 98 finally won it. 
99 BMW. Nobody remembers that BMW won the more in 99. I never understood why they... I think they went, went off and did Formula 1, didn't they? But it was just such a shame. That's the kind of lost Le Mans to me. And then we enter the Audi area. And I'm going to skip through this um, because it just basically... It just goes... You know, with, the, with the exception of... Well, OK. 2000, 2001, 2002, Audi, Audi, Audi. Bentley, 2003. And then 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, Audi... 9 Peugeot, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 Audi, and then you get Porsche in 15, 16, 17, and Toyota 18, 19, 20, and 21. The end. Faultless. Absolutely spot on. <laughs> that was unbelievably impressive. And I have just one question. Go on. Why? Well, why do I know all that rubbish? <laughs> Uh, goodness knows I haven't got a clue I mean it's just a lifetime of just collecting that's I, it, you know, it? I was, I was all, when I was a kid I guess it's because when I was a kid I was I was just funnily enough I was I'd probably given more details on Bentleys in the 1920s than anything else and that was, that was just my thing I don't know why there was just there was something you know boy's own the tales of daring do from back then um, you know, I think a lot of us who are passionate about anything they're usually just one particular thing in that area that you pick up on. I picked up on that, and that was all about Le Mans. So I've just been, because of that, frankly, I've just been interested in Le Mans ever since. Um, so, yeah, um, I can do it. What value, <laughs> do you know, that's probably the first time in my life that information's been of any value to me at all. Yeah. Um, but it's actually quite, it's quite nice, cathartic, get it out of your system. That's really so good. Go. That was really impressive, um, all off the top of your head. I mean... That is a staggering feat, actually. Um, it's, it's not the most useful information, but it was fun. <laughs> we found a use for it, at least. It's total rubbish. But anyway, um, that, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't back myself to be able to do that, even if I had a day to revise. Um, yeah, but, but you're well. half my age, mate, and, and, and nothing like a sad as me, so <laughs> Okay, well, there you go. Well done. You absolutely nailed that. Um, Okay, well, let's leave Le Mans behind then. It looks like you yeah, might need we? to... Thank you. you yeah, might I'm need probably a done for another year now. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about car interiors. We, we, we don't need to do much of this, actually, um, because we're almost half an hour in already. But, I mean, we don't spend much time talking about car interiors. I suppose it's not the sexy part of a car when you're reviewing them or when we're sort of reminiscing about great cars from the past. Um, and yet it's the bit that you spend all your time in. I mean, how long do you actually spend looking at the exterior of your car? The few seconds as you walk up to it, maybe when you wash it, or if you yeah. park in a pub but, car but park and it, sit at a table, you know? But also, you don't interact with the exterior. Well, unless you're strange, you don't interact with the exterior <laughs> of the car, do you? You just look no. at it. Whereas the interior of your car, you know, frankly, well, you have to, uh, you have to that's where all the noise comes from. You're, you, know, you never hear your car when you're outside it, so that's where the noise comes in. You're touching everything. Um, you know, you're obviously looking at everything all the time. You're smelling it too because it smells, you know, all your senses. Um, well, you probably don't lick it, do you? But, um, <laughs> well, I hope you don't. Um, but other than that, um, and yet people say, oh, that's a great looking car. And when they say that, they mean what they actually mean is that car's got a great looking exterior. Um, it's strange, isn't it? Interiors are so much more important. Mm. Well, I bet mm. there are interior designers of cars out there who feel like their work goes a bit unnoticed so here you go we're giving you a bit of love this time um so what do we mean then by good car interior design what are the sort of the fundamentals i'm going to propose right at the top of the list it's the seating position correct 100 percent. yeah 
And it's different. It, a, a good season position changes enormously depending on the type of car in question, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So who, it, who, it, 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 who does it well then? Um, let's think about sort of different categories. I think the standout one for me in the sort of supercar world has always been McLaren or, you know, for the last decade or so it's been McLaren. Yeah, but, but you're talking about, to me, the seating position is one thing, but it's the way... It's the seating position and the way the glass house is arranged around the seating position because that's, that is the thing that McLaren's do better than anybody, the visibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, and you do have this, you know, it seems so basic to think, well, you know, you should, be, you, you should be sitting in the car and the steering wheel should be in front of you and the pedals should be where your feet naturally fall. So often they're not. It's actually a lot better now than it used to be when they didn't make symmetrical cars. Um, so particularly if you are driving a car that had been designed you know, in a left-hand drive market. Um, and they just haven't bothered to make the car symmetrical, and so you get these huge pedal offsets. And so sometimes, you know, you could be sitting in a car. All the E-Class Mercedes a few years back, you wouldn't believe how bad they were. You'd be sitting there, and the seat would be slightly on, you know, diagonal like this, and the steering would be over there, and the pedals would be somewhere else. And, you, you know, your body would not be aligned when you're driving the car. And over long distances, you really feel that stuff. Um, so, you know, you need... To be aligned, you need a decent uh, amount of particularly reach for me on the steering wheel. I'm not too bothered about rake, or it's less important to me. Um, and you need to be able to see out the bloody thing, particularly if it's a fast car. You know, and I've talked about this on the podcast before. You know, if, if you take me, the extremes to me are something like you know, any McLaren, let's say, of 720S and a Lamborghini Aventador. I would be so much faster point to point in the McLaren just because I can see where I'm going. It is as simple as that. You're not looking at this little letterbox. It might look really, really cool from the outside, but on the inside, it's a pain because you can't see where you're going. And, you know, with cars like that, which are so fast and so big and wide, if they don't give you confidence, you can't enjoy them. You certainly can't drive them fast. Uh, and where does that confidence come from? It comes from being able to position the car on the road. And where does that come from? It comes from being able to see out the bloody thing so you know where you are. Mm. And that's why, actually, mid-engine cars have often have a good a big advantage over front engine cars because you're not trying to peer over a high scuttle and a tall v12 engine in front of you so that that scuttle is much lower and your visibility you see so much more of the road right in front of you you do a, a good yeah. well Mc, Lamborghini, uh, sorry mclaren's a good examples but i think one of the best for visibility right in front of you is an original honda nsx i remember thinking i can almost see the stones in the road going underneath the front tires and that just it just gives you such an inherent innate sense of the road in front of you and what you know what you're driving onto and it's it's incredible what a difference it makes but you know that's not a coincidence so the fact that mclarens today have great visibility stems actually directly from the honda nsx because when gordon murray was doing the mclaren f1 the car he actually spent more time looking at than any other it wasn't bugattis or actually 220s or f40s it was the honda nsx you know, gordon murray had one as a as a daily driver and that's where that principle came from and gordon murray was as you know obsessed with the idea of you know, not just building the world's fastest car but the world's fastest most usable car and that was a philosophy which the modern mclaren automotive took over unchanged from the mclaren f1 and that came from the nsx the other thing I like about McLarens is their reclined seating position with legs, feet quite high, legs outstretched, steering wheel coming all the way to greet you. Um, it's in the P1, it's at its best, I think. Um, but the, those cars also tend to have good seats. Okay, that's clearly an important part of a good seating position. And uh, Lamborghinis, 
Certainly, some of the the recent ones have had terrible seats. I, early, do you hurricane, ever sit- early hurricane seats are the worst seats I can remember sitting in um, in a modern car. The, do you mean the buckets, yeah. the fixed buckets? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I can remember driving one from here. So I'm in the Welsh borders here, and I can remember driving one from here to Blyton. So it's about 250 miles. Uh, and frankly, there's not a car in the world I wouldn't have preferred to drive home. Yeah, they did get better after that. It's just amazing though that that, that they ever allowed that seat out into production isn't it i just P- i can't particularly begin to given understand that this, is, this is a volkswagen owned company you would have thought that they you know because they all have to go through all the volkswagen you know approval processes and you would have thought wouldn't you that they would just someone have gone actually guys this is this is really bad but um apparently not I'll tell you what i do like I and mean, it's so rare you get in the car but i think the la ferrari had it um is a fixed seat <laughs> yeah so you get in the car and the seat's where the seat is. It can't, doesn't move at all. And then the pedals and the wheel come to you. And I just love that idea. I mean, from a car design point of view, it's great because, you know, what it means is, you know, you could easily have, what, well, I don't know, 100, with two passengers, you could easily have 160, 180 kilos of mass right in the middle of the car. And why would you let that mass migrate around the cabin? Why do you sometimes have it here, sometimes, the, you know, fix it and then let the car come to you? I love that. Um, so yeah movable pedal boxes Maserati Bora did that 50 years ago um, so yeah I love that it's, it just feels quite serious doesn't it um, okay so clearly visibility is important a good seating position and a good seat um, yeah what else are we looking for in a good cabin I mean obviously it totally depends on the type of car we're talking about it does but but, but, but you know ergonomics are ergonomics um, and this is this is what I don't know. I've been really commuting this morning for some reason, but this this is what I you know I increasingly get frustrated about with modern car design because I, I'm you know, I'm not anti you know TFT screens. I actually think they're fantastic. I love those screens. But what has happened and what is happening now and what I'm afraid will continue to happen is that in the alleged interest of decluttering cabins and creating beautiful cabins you know, buttons are going to go and everything's going to be on these screens. So you'll have these beautiful interiors, all these wonderful wall-to-wall screens and everything. But actually, they're horrible to use or they can be horrible to use. Um, you know, the, the, the classic example um, is the most recent, you know, Volkswagen architecture for the Golf. Where it's just, when, you know, and actually, I, I genuinely think it's a safety thing because you spend so much time doing this, trying to find the right thing, trying to find the right menu, trying to find the right sub-menu. Um, and it's frustrating and it takes your eyes off the road. Um, and the amount of times, this will give a bit of insight into the kind of person I am when I'm on my own in a car. I find myself shouting at a car, just give me a bloody button. <laughs> but particularly because, if you're on a bumpy you know, road in a car with stiff suspension and you're bouncing about in the seat and your finger's doing this while you're trying to jab the, the right button, you need to be able to brace yourself against something, don't you? Just to be able to hit the right button. Yeah. And, and, and of course, what they would say is they say, well, you're doing it all wrong. You should be using voice control and, and all of that. And, you know, I think, I think there, is a, there, there is an argument for that. But voice control systems are by no means um, foolproof at the moment. And they've been working on them for, for quite a long time. Um, and they can be quite annoying. And, you know, why should you have to do what the car wants you to do? Why, won't the, why shouldn't the car do what you want to do? You know, and if I want to, I don't know, knock back the stability control from normal to dynamic why can't i just go boop, rather than disappear into some sub menu or you know and figure out where it just it just annoys me um 
I like the clear I like the clear graphics um, and and I do visually like things, but it's it's just form coming before function, and it and it, it it worries me. And I don't think it's making cars any easier to operate, and cars that are harder to operate are cars that are that are less safe. Um, okay, let me give you another one that is important to me and which my car doesn't have. And actually, from time to time, which it car, does annoy me. Which car me. is that? No, I'm not even going to mention it. Do you know what? <laughs> no, I'm not going to get stuck into it. My, so it's a, it's a central armrest. And yes. It's a funny one because I, I always find that when I've got an armrest in the right position, I just sit square in the car, and I, in the seat, and I just feel more comfortable and more relaxed. You're so right. You're so right. I've been knocking about in a Range Rover um, for a few days recently, um, and it's got that adjustable armrest that comes yeah. down. Yeah. To me, that's just luxury. That feels so luxurious. And you, you can put it exactly where you want. And, you're just, ah, and the, right, <laughs> uh, the right elbow goes there, the left one goes there. And it's, I completely agree with you. It's a really, really um, important thing. Um, on, a, on a very long journey, if I don't have one in my car or any other car that doesn't have a central armrest, I just I, I get a bit lost. I'm like, what do I do with my left arm? And after a while, I can't stop thinking about it. And it just becomes really irritating. Okay, uh, I'll give you one. Steering wheels. I, I can't believe how difficult some manufacturers still find it to produce a decent steering wheel. You know, this is the primary interface between man and machine. You know, there aren't many ways of doing it right. But you still get, you know, steering wheels of the wrong size, um, you know, the wrong, often the wrong shape. They have, uh, the rims are either too fat or too thin. Um, the, the amount of squish, you know, those BMW M Sport steering wheels where you think it's a basically sort of disappear into them they, and whatever little feels come back up the rack is gone by the time you reach your thing. You know, it's just, you know, and, and also, you know, sporty cars always have a really small steering wheel, so you really can't drive them at all. I mean, again, it's, you know, it's McLaren and Porsche, aren't they? You know, they built they have steering wheels which don't have any clutter on them. They're just they're quite big, they're quite low geared, they have perfect um sized rims, perfect diameters, and you just sit there and you just think it's so simple. Why can't they all do that? And you have these ones with oh I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it really Because, you know, it is the one thing the law requires you to be co- in contact with for the entire time you're driving the car. You'd think it's the one thing they'd spend most time getting right, but they don't. Um, we won't talk about flat bottoms. What about, though, interior quality, material quality, fit and finish, build? Does that stuff really matter to you? Again, it, it sort of depends on the car in question, doesn't it? But can bad materials and, and bad build ruin a car for you? I get, it depends so much on the car. It really does depend. Um, certain cars, you know, it's all about priorities, isn't it? I mean, I would hate to think that um, you know, that catering were compromising the dynamic ability because they've only got so much money to spend and they've decided making, they decided to spend on making the interior plush. I mean, that would just be, be ridiculous. But, you know, at the other end of it, if you get into, I don't know, a Continental GT or any of those sorts of cars, um, you want it to be more than just high quality. You, you know, it's not that you just don't want any hard plastics, you know, scratchy stuff in there. You actually want there to be a real sense of occasion. You know, you want it to be almost be a home from home. You want to find it, you know, in the long term car park at the end of a, you know, hard working trip abroad and you get in the car and you actually think, you know, I may be three hours from home, but I'm kind of home already. Um, that's what you want. Um, and, you know, and it's really, really important. And that's why, you know, I think that cars that use lots of proprietary parts bin stuff from other manufacturers because it's cheap. And I understand the expense of homologating this stuff sometimes precludes its, you know, its inclusion. But, um, 
yeah, I think I, th- I, th- I think for those sorts of cars, it's really important. But actually, if you if you're just talking about normal cars, if you're talking about you know a three series or a Golf, yeah, you don't want it to be unpleasant. You don't want to be sitting there thinking this is a cheap and nasty interior. Um, but actually, it's just got to be decent enough, reasonable quality, but it doesn't have to, um, you know, blow your mind every time you get in it. No. Um, okay, so just jumping back a little bit, TFT screens, touchscreens. Do you? I mean, where do you? I think the solution that I like most is something like iDrive, a good physical control that allows you to navigate the whole screen um, on feel as much as on on sight. Um, that I mean, that's got to be the way, hasn't it? Yeah, but even that's going. If you look at Mercedes Benz, they had the you know, Mercedes. They're, they're all command system. They had that wheel. Yeah, which was fantastic because it worked exactly like that. That's gone now. They've just got a pad, which you've got to do this with your fingers and do this with and do and you know, it, it, a lot of this may say more about me than it does about the cars I'm talking about. Um, but also, you know, I look at that and I think to myself, because I'm so cynical, I think, you know, why do we have all these screens? Why do we have pads instead? Of, and I'm afraid the reason is it's just cheaper for them. It's just cheaper to do. Because you know you make a button, you've got a homologator button, you know. And you, whereas you just you, know, you just make one touchscreen, which is one you know massive component with no moving parts in it at all, so it's never going to go or shouldn't go wrong. Um, it's just it's just a way of manufacturers taking cost out of cars while making them look really plush, um, and that's why they're doing it. Um, but the, as I said, you know earlier this, you know they're actually making cars harder to operate, and I can't see that as progress. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, there we go. Some good car and old interior speaks. Yeah. <laughs> Good car interior chat. We don't do that very often, but it is important. Um, right, well, let's leave that one there. Uh, that's Le Mans 2021. <laughs> Not brilliant, but there we go. We hope the next one will be car interiors. And Andrew Frankel with another incredible memory trick. Um, that may be the last of them for a while. It? Don't expect me to come out and do Indy 500 winners next week because <laughs> I ain't going to do it. Okay. Well, maybe we'll find one that you can do later on. Uh, but there we go. That was good. Um, thank you, everybody. Be, we could try. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, please remember to rate and review the podcast um, and also go and download the Intercooler app and start your free trial. Please. And yeah. yeah, indeed. And uh, we'll be back to talk to you again next week. Look forward to it. Thanks, all. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.